2: Welcome to City Game, your Brooklyn Nets podcast on WFAN and
0: radio.com. Here's your host, Steve Lichtenstein.
2: Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the City Game podcast, the show for Brooklyn Nets fans. I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFN.com, and folks, as Nets fans, we've often succumbed to a quicksand effect. You know, losses piling up in the most bizarre ways, all the breaks going against us, bad calls, misses on wide open shots that could win games, you know what I'm talking about. Well, we're now living in a bizarro universe. This team is so talented and playing with such a high margin of error, everything has to go their opponent's way to beat them. Yeah, the Nets got a couple of breaks to ward off the Knicks at Barclays Center last night. But let's not dismiss the awesome display that got them the 18-point lead You know, before the Knicks fought back and nearly stole it. Folks... We are witnessing one of the greatest offensive configurations in the history of the NBA. And time will tell if they indeed turn out to be the greatest. So, for those of you who want me to talk about the Battle of New York and who owns this town, look, I've got just the right special guest book for you this week. The highly regarded reporter from the Associated Press, Brian Mahoney. He'll join me in a few minutes. You know, Brian covers both teams, so his insights will be worthy of a listen. But this team has bigger battles that lay ahead of them. And that's kind of what I want to focus on. How can they get to the promised land? So I hope that you'll appreciate this show, and if you do, I ask that you please subscribe to this podcast when you can on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're using right now. And feel free to let me know what you think in the Apple Podcast review section. But I guess before I get into the macro segments... Let me just say that the ending last night, with the controversial travel call on Julius Randle with the Knicks down three, you know, to me it wasn't so cut and dried as Knicks fans are whining about. You know, I tweeted out the official NBA rule, which states that a player may dribble a second time if he lost control because of an opponent touching the ball, lost control of the ball. You know, I'm not arguing that Kyrie Irving swiped air, but did Randle really lose control? He had both hands on the ball, including a palm, you know, through his up and down jump. Funny thing, you know, I talked to my upcoming guest, Brian Mahoney, before the game, but he also happened to be the one who had pool reporter duties after the game, and according to his interview with referee Scott Foster, the travel call arose because Randall deliberately put the ball on the floor and then was the first to touch it. Now, could it have been called a jump ball? Well, the rules say that you'd call a jump instead of a travel based on the up and down if Randall had held onto the ball, but not if he intentionally dropped it and then touched it first. So that's that. Nets escaped with the 13th win in their last 14 games and stayed within a half game of first place Philadelphia in the Eastern Conference race. And frankly, I don't really care about who owns New York. One game isn't going to matter anyway. Like Leon Hess said when he hired Bill Parcells to coach the Jets 25 years ago, I'm getting old, man. I want to see this team win now. Like I predicted since the preseason, I just feel the Sixers will be Brooklyn's biggest challenge. Always felt that way. You know, they used to dominate the Nets with their size, now they've added some shooting, too. Not quite Nets shooting. I mean, I heard Brad Stevens on the Celtics postgame show after the Nets beat them pretty good called the Nets perhaps the best shooting team ever assembled. After last night, the Nets shooting split as a team stands at 50, 40.5, 80. That's redonkulous. Sixers, though, you know, they have three starters shooting over 40% from three, and another, Danny Green, hanging close at over 38%. And going to be a tough out for anybody. Of course, with all things being equal in terms of health, you gotta like the Nets' chances when Kevin Durant returns to the lineup. I mean, I think a lot of people are kind of sleeping on that. You know, how having a guy nearly seven feet tall who's just as much of a walking bucket as James Harden and Kyrie Irving, how that changes everything. Instead of having to go through lengthy periods where the Nets are relying on either Harden or Irving to carry the load, now you can go most of the game having two lethal weapons always on the court. I'm going to say this about Harden: you know, given how much he's playing, leading the league in minutes per game by nearly a minute over his closest competitor, and that's need to be monitoring him a bit. He's shown a tendency in the past. I don't know, not necessarily play himself out of shape. Let's just say he's looked fatigued in past postseasons, and he may be feeling that a little bit now. He's missed I mean, at least his last 11 three point attempts in the last two plus games. Look, you know, he's still the most dominant player on the court most nights. Against the Knicks, became the first net ever to post a triple double with at least 15 points, assists, and rebounds. And, you know, I've talked in the past about how his passing has been sublime, his post defense underrated, and now you can add leadership to the list of his MVP type attributes. Again, last night the cameras caught him in. Heavy conversation with DeAndre Jordan, trying to get his head right. But could the wear and tear of this condensed season be weighing on him? Again, you know, I just think the Nets will have to monitor that. And speaking of the Nets' vaunted performance team, what's Blake Griffin been up to? I mean, I got all excited last week when the Nets won the bidding war for him after Detroit bought him out. But he's yet to suit up in a Nets jersey. Hey, he swears he's not injured, just needs some time to, quote, wrap up, unquote. So before last night's game, I asked Nets coach Steve Nash where Blake's at, and here's the clip. Hi, Steve. I just wanted to see if you could give us an update on what Blake has been able to do. Is he performing with the Stay Ready
1: group? Is he playing three-on-three? He, he I don't know that he's played much three-on-three. He practiced with us once um, coming out of the break. He's working out every day, he's with the performance team every day, so he's continuing to ramp up, but he's, he's healthy enough to play. We're just trying to, to work on some of his physical deficiencies um, to to, improve, to help the knee and also ramp up his activity so that he can have a safer return to play. So we just keep monitoring it, keep building, um, and you know we'll have him back at some point here.
2: That was that's coach Steve Nash who on one hand talked about how Blake is not injured, and on the other said he's worried about the knee that he had surgery on. So, you know, I talked last week about how Nash will have some big rotation decisions to make when and if everyone gets healthy, and the degree of difficulty on those decisions seems to rise every game Nick Claxton plays. I'm going to try to keep from going overboard on the hype train here, but man, he's impressive. Honestly, I thought he'd have more of an impact on offense than defense with his ability to handle the ball and shoot, but really it's been his footwork on D that's made me rethink things overall in the big picture. You know, He's not quite bulky enough to handle someone like Joel Embiid in a playoff series, but you have to love things like the way he can switch out onto guards or provides help at the rim while still also getting to those second and third jumps. That end possessions with rebounds. According to NBA.com, opponents are shooting just 45% when he's been the closest defender. That's really good for a big man. Nets have a net rating of plus nineteen point four in the 127 small sample-size minutes he's played over the eight games since he's returned from his leg injury. And a lot of those minutes have been shared with Jeff Green. So I had to ask Green about what he's seen from the sophomore Claxton, and here's the clip. Hi, right, Jeff. Uh, you're sharing the court a lot with me lately. Just wanted to know, uh, you know, a very talented player, but what really stands out to you that makes you think the Nets have something special?
0: Uh, I mean, first of all, he's young. He's young as hell, and, you know, the, his... He's he's asking good questions of, about learning uh, learning his position. Uh, his IQ is really good. A guy who can put it on the floor, um, you know, finish at the rim, um, one through five switching, guarding every position. So I mean, that in itself right there is, is big for what we do, and I think that's something that'll help him along the way. Um, I mean, when you're establishing that this early in his career, and he's capable of doing it, it will only make him better. Uh, down the line. So um, he's been working, working his ass off, uh, getting better each day.
2: That was Nets forward Jeff Green. who has been dealing with a nagging shoulder injury, but managed to play an integral role in last night's win, giving Knicks all-star Julius Randle fits while pumping in 20 points of his own. I imagine Griffin will lead into some of Green's minutes down the road, but I still think there are ways when you can play all three of Claxton, Griffin and Green together, especially if Griffin's long range shooting woes in Detroit were the product of his environment and not decaying skill. You know, smaller isn't always better. Kinda depends on the matchups. And in that regard, I did find it encouraging that Nash went with Green in the starting five last night instead of Bruce Brown against the Knicks, despite the team's prior success with Brown. I know there are some that have been growing concerned when seeing Brown and Jordan share the court, two non-shooters. But the fact is that the Nets have been doing just fine on that end with those lineups. A 120 offensive rating in not insignificant 352 minutes. That's even better than the team's record-breaking 118 points scored per 100 possessions overall. I know it doesn't make sense, so I asked Nash to try to explain it. Hi, Steve. Uh, spacing on offense is a popular topic. Adding Blake gives you opportunities to create more spacing. Yet you guys are crushing teams when you have Bruce Brown and DeAndre Jordan share the court. Two guys who score pr- predominantly in the paint. Uh, what did you? What do you make of that?
1: Well, um, you know, teams often double or soft double uh james and kyrie so you know that allows bruce opportunity to to catch in the short roll and attack the basket and you've got uh deandre camped out there under the basket so if they, those two playing two on one or them playing four on three with the two corner shooters you know it, it, we've found a way to make it work and um you know it's not it's not going to work every night it's not going to work all the time but we've done I thought those two guys have been great and and they, James has been able to find them a lot. They've been able to find the cracks and the, the, the soft spots in the defense because of the attention that James and Kyrie, um, you know, uh, warrant. So it's, it's nice that we can find a way that, it, it, that even though, you know, it, it's not the same gravity with those two on the floor, we still are able to be really efficient and effective.
2: Interesting answer from Nash there on the Brown-Jordan duo. Like he said, it's not going to work every night. And I think it was pretentious that Brown played only 7 minutes last night. Because against bigger teams, you just can't have a six-foot-four power forward. Knicks went on a good run in the 4th quarter last night when Green rested or was injured. Cutting the Nets lead to 4 before Nash finally put Green back in with just under 5 minutes to go. And I guess the ending of that game will endure for a little bit around these parts. So now's a good time to bring in my special guest of the week. The terrific reporter for the Associated Press, Brian Mahoney. Again, mind you, this was recorded before last night's game, but you know I think the discussion is still relevant. And here's my interview with Brian. Folks, I'm so grateful to have this unbiased expert on the Knicks-Nets rivalry as my special guest this week. The most esteemed writer for the Associated Press, Mr. Brian Mahoney, is on the Zoom call. Brian. Thank you so much uh, for giving me some time today to talk Nets basketball.
0: Hey, thank you, Steve.
2: So, you know, we're recording this in advance of tonight's matchup, and you're someone who has a good pulse of things from having covered both teams in the area for many years. Uh, So can you give the listeners your take on where the rivalry stands? Now we have one team that's up and coming and the other that's in, like, win-now mode. You know, the Nets are surprisingly the ones you know, with the higher expectations. And most importantly, you know, if there was a full house allowed tonight at Barkley Center, what do you think the ratio of Nets fans, Knicks fans would have been?
0: That would be interesting uh, because obviously, uh, you know, the Nets are so invested in this season. Their fans are, I'm sure they wouldn't want to miss any games, uh, but at the same time, the Knicks fans find a way into that building. And it's a fun year for the rivalry this year, because I think, uh, you know, even though, first of all, both teams are winning, which doesn't happen very much often. Uh, I think but,
2: three times in like, I, I, I looked this up, it was like three times in 45 years were both teams good.
0: Is that right? Wow, it's something it's, like that. It, I, I wouldn't be too surprised, as bad as that sounds. But, you know, and the Knicks fans. Knicks are winning just enough that their fan, look, they're not expecting to be at the Nets level this year. But where they are feels like a win compared to where they've been the last few years and even what some of the expectations were this year. So, uh, you know, both teams are upbeat. Both fan bases are upbeat. And, yeah, it would have been a lot of fun to have a packed building uh, for that game, the ESPN game and everything like that.
2: Yeah, well, the reason that I asked the attendance question is because I'm also a Devils fan way back since the team moved to New Jersey nearly 40 years ago. And I can tell you to this day, you know, even after the Devils, you know, won three Stanley Cups, the crowds at Prudential Center, they're probably no better than 60% to two-thirds Devils fans. And, you know, you go to Madison Square Garden, and it's nowhere near that divided. So my follow-up question to you is, you know, whether you think the Knicks are so similarly ingrained into the city fabric that, you know, it's folly – to believe that this will ever be a Nets town, no matter how dominant any one particular team will ever be?
0: Uh, I don't think it could ever get to be a fully Nets town, and I don't even know if the Nets uh, feel that way. Uh, The Knicks is, you know, it's funny. If you hear through the years, uh, you know, other players, fans talk about the Knicks as this, you know, great historical franchise. They're viewed kind of better than they really are. Uh, they, they are really, they're a franchise that's won two titles, and that's been terrible for many, many, many years. But somehow, uh, because of, I guess, the building, because of the location, because of all that other you know different stuff that's not the stuff on the basketball court the Knicks are viewed as this you know sort of legacy team a little bit and they have an enormous fan base that has kind of stuck with them even through some bad years and and yeah I don't think the Nets can ever really catch that I think the Nets can you know win more titles maybe I think they can do a lot of better stuff maybe get some better local TV ratings all that kind of thing but to ever think they could be New York's Team, uh, I think, is probably a little more than you know. Maybe they can aspire to.
2: Yeah, I think they should pretty much concentrate on Philadelphia right now. Do you see them as their biggest rival?
0: Yeah, that's probably a good point. Uh, you know that, that would be they had a playoff series a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, both teams are, are pretty stacked talent wise, uh, close geographically. Uh, you know, that is probably a, you know one that they should certainly focus on. And uh, you know, it's a team that's going to be good for a lot of years, probably. So you know, that's one you are going to be expected competing with.
2: All right, so let's get to this Nets team and some of your recent articles you've submitted for the Associated Press. you know one you wrote last week on whether was on whether the league has finally evolved to the point where a historically potent offense like Brooklyn's can win a championship with not even an average level defense. So what have you gleaned from not just the coaches you quoted in the article, but maybe from talking to other sources around the league do they and do you think? the league has gone too far in the advantages they're giving to offenses.
0: Well, you know, that's certainly something I think they, they could argue a little bit. And and you do hear that for, from a lot of people. And even, you know, the one thing that surprised me a little bit sometimes watching this Nets team play this year in some of the games that they, you know, win or lose is the opposing team kind of saying, hey, we defended them pretty well. Uh, you know, I remember when the, the Clippers played here, I think that was something like a, you know, 124, 120 games, something like that. And, you know, the Clippers have quiet letter on the floor that Paul George, these are elite defensive players. And Paul George said, you know, they made some tough shots. We defended them very, very well. And if you could defend a team very well used to be, you'd hold them to hundred points and maybe 95. Uh, Now you defend a team like the Nets and you defend them pretty well. And, maybe you can get on the 115, 110. So uh, it is just an offensive game now, and to load up on offense like the Nets did is, you know, no one ever would have thought, hey, you can win that way, but that might be the way you're going to win right now.
2: Yeah, I've heard so many people talk about, you know, how Kyrie Irving is, you know, it doesn't matter what defense you play. He, You know, if he gets to his spot, he's almost automatic. So uh, what about the second part of the question, About whether you personally believe the league is going too far, especially you know all those fouls where if you the shooter leans into the defender, defender could be even you know both feet on the floor, and it's still if he's got to give the guy a place to land, it's it's gotten a little too far in my opinion. I wanted to get your take.
0: Yeah. And that's when they really cracked down about a couple of years ago. Obviously, when Kawhi Leonard uh, got hurt, landed on a guy's foot, they really even made it more so that it could be a flagrant foul if, you know, guys are, you know, landing too close to you. And, and you're right. These guys are shooting. It's not even that they're such good shooters, too. As Rick Carlisle said, talking about Harden, uh, it's how far these guys shoot from now. It's one thing to defend the guy's you know, I remember talking to Larry Bird a few years ago about the three-point shot, and he was saying that he didn't even practice it back when he played. As good a shooter as he is, it just wasn't part of the offense. And now you have guys not even just shooting three-pointers. They're shooting 30-foot three-pointers. And, you know, so have to come and play that far out, and then you can't hand-check them if they try and drive by you. Uh, I just don't know what the answers defensively are right now, and it's pretty clear that even some great coaches don't either.
2: Well, I'm talking to Brian Mahoney of the Associated Press. Let's move on to the defensive side of the ball and what do you make of the way the Nets are improving defend in their defensive metrics? I'm a little leery because small sample, that no you know no team is whole. Do you see this method in terms of the constant switching? Do you think that is a route that can be successful in the playoffs?
0: Well, they look like they've gotten better, and, and I don't know how much of that is because, as you just alluded to, some of the, you know, you're playing teams that aren't necessarily whole, you know, maybe it's some of the competition they've played at, uh, or maybe it is just say they're plugging in guys who are doing better, uh, you know, the the more minutes now for Bruce Brown, and, uh, you know, DeAndre Jordan has been a great defender in his career, a very good defender, and and, you know, he hasn't looked that way the entire season, but there are moments lately where he's looked like he's supposed to look, so, you know, maybe they are in the right direction, but You know, ultimately, I just think that's a team that's going to play as much defense as they feel like they have to. You know, when the offense is rolling, uh, they're not going to get into it as much. When there are nights where they're not shooting the ball well, like the Detroit game a couple nights ago, you know, hey, then they're going to realize they have to defend. And, uh, you know, that's not maybe the best way to live, but I think maybe it's a way they can get away with it.
2: Yeah, well, they're rolling right now. You know, Brian, they've won 10 out of 12 going into tonight's game with the Knicks. Yet, you know, the topic most fans want to talk about is who's coming here next. You know, they, they traded for Harden. You know, they got Blake Griffin on a buyout. You know, yet the fans, they're insatiable. They want more. And, you know, Sean Marks does have options. You know, he's got the exceptions. Spencer Dinwiddie's aspiring contract. And there's the buyout market. You know, in your opinion, who do you think is mostly on their radar? And who do you think they should be targeting based on need?
0: Well, I think part of it depends on how good Blake Griffin looks whenever he gets on the floor. I think that's obviously the spot they needed all season, another power forward. Uh, you know, I, I would have thought it'd be one who maybe is a little more defensive minded, but you know, who knows, maybe that's not the way they look, but if he looks good, it plugs a hole. If he doesn't, then I think that's still something they have to look at. Uh, they, I think they still could use, you know, an enforcer kind of guy, uh, you know, six, eight to, to seven foot kind of guy. And. Uh, you know, those guys will hit the, some of them might hit the buyout market. I think, you know, the Nets are this team that should be in the race for any guys in the buyout market because of, look, you know, this awesome team around you. It's a great city, obviously, uh, you know, a, a great chance to win this year. Um, so, you know, I, I think no matter what happens, those guys, some, you know, after March 25th, after their trade line, deadline, there'll be some guys out there. And then I think the Nets will be in the running for, you know, any one of them they really want.
2: You know, in your opinion, more likely to be a net after the buyout uh, market closes, PJ Tucker, Andre Drummond, or neither?
0: I, I would I would think it would be Drummond simply because I think PJ Tucker may be a guy who they can actually get assets for, uh, you know, by a trade. And I don't know the Nets have enough left that they can trade for for a kind of player like that. Uh, but Drummond, I think with his salary and everything, I I could see him reaching the buyout market. Uh, and if so, then you know, that's a guy who I think the Nets would go after for sure.
2: So I'm talking to Brian Mahoney of the Associated Press. And one area that another area that we don't know is how Steve Nash encounters his first postseason as a head coach. You know, way back in September when he was introduced to New York media, uh, I remember you were one of the few who directed a question, not at Nash, but at Sean Marks. And I must say it was a good one because I had my hand raised, ready to ask the same question, but wasn't called on. So I was very glad you asked it. It was about weighing what he knew about Nash versus putting the onus on him as a rookie coach alongside, you know, these win now expectations. What do you recall about Marks's response? And what's your evaluation as to how Nash has measured up in that regard,
0: well, it's interesting, Steve. And you know, you're right. I think we we were kind of you know thinking something that I think needed to be asked about. You know, when you put a team like this together, and you know, there's so many coaches out there who they probably could have gotten. You know, who are veteran coaches in, in a team that's ready to win now. But you know, Sean Marks didn't really hire Steve Nash because of his coaching acumen. He, he hired him in a lot of ways because of uh, he called him a connector, if I recall, like a guy who can really bring teams together. And, uh, you know, he talked about the, the bringing the joy of the game and everything. And I think that does matter more this year than a lot of other years with all the, you know, COVID problems and the inability to practice a lot and not knowing who's going to be on your team sometimes. And certainly, you know Kyrie Irving's situation taking time away from the team. I think that stuff is a lot of that. Maybe just a regular basketball coach couldn't have handled, and a guy like Steve Nash seems to kind of get through it. Uh, so uh, I've been impressed the way he's handled that kind of stuff. Uh, this has been a you know a tough year in a lot of ways off the basketball court. Uh, but you're right, come playoff time, you have to show you can you know coach the X's and O's. I think he'll get better at that, and I think he'll do fine. Uh, but you know, remains to be seen this team in a lot of ways is going to win games in regular season either way, but playoff time, that probably changes. Uh,
2: One other thing from that day, I wanted to bring you back. If you can remember, you know, I, again, I found it so strange that Mark's escaped some of those questions that day. Like I think it was Howard Beck who asked about Nash skipping the line because, you know, there are so many qualified black coaches who gotten passed over for jobs and I, I just thought, you know, Mark should have, a, have been the one to answer that one. You know, he was the one who did the skipping. So, I mean, what was your take as to, you know, the skipping the line question?
0: Yeah. And, and you know, I, I mean, I'm in both ways on that. I do think there are a lot of guys, uh, black and white, who have proven themselves who deserve a chance. Uh, I also think. You know, a team and and the league office feels that way, too. You know, you 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 don't want to get involved in people's hiring practices. Uh, You know, if the Nets feel like this is the guy for their team, then they should have the right to do it. I mean, I don't think uh, they, you know, they have made decisions that have been so wrong in the past that we don't get the benefit of doubt. But my curiosity on that was more you know, the Nets are a team who should have known that they saw this happen with Jason Kidd, I thought. They had a team that was ready to win at the time in a lot of ways when they had Joe Johnson and Darren Williams, and they made the, you know, the, the trade for Garnett and Pierce, and then they bring in a new Jason Kidd, who wasn't ready to be a head coach at the time, and they got off to a horrible start that year. So I thought if any team would know to get an experienced coach would have win that team, team would be the Nets. So I was surprised they didn't. But again, uh, the moves they've made, Sean Marks made the last couple of years have been you know, all very good moves for the most part. And, you know, this looks like things are going to, you know, go in the right direction for them.
2: Do you ever wonder if they did go that route? Like, you know, Tom Thibodeau, I think, you know, was the perfect hire for the Knicks. I mean, everyone talked about, you know, how he doesn't develop guys. You know, Julius Randle doesn't count now. You know, R.J. Barrett (laughs) doesn't count, you know, just because Kevin Knox isn't taking a step. But do you ever think about what would have happened if the Nets did go that route, whether that, you know, whether that would have changed things?
0: It's interesting because, you know, the way the game is now and the way the Nets have kind of built their team, it's entirely different than the way Tom Thibodeau coaches. And, I, you know, I don't know. Do I think he would have won with that team? Sure. I think he's too good a coach not to figure out a way. But uh, it seems like both teams got the guy in the right place for who they are. Uh, You know, uh, the way the Knicks are doing with Thibodeau, I think, is exactly right for them. And and the way the Nets are playing under Nash seems to be the way for them. So, uh, you know, I think they could have been fine reversed, but I think it's better the way it ended up.
2: I I agree with you on this one. So anyway, I got one more for you, if you don't mind. Uh, I asked this of Alex Schiffer of The Athletic last week, so just want to hear your take on this. And that's the potential of a home court advantage in the playoffs. You know, we don't know what the impact of vaccines or the variants of the virus will be two weeks from now, you know, let alone two months from now when the playoffs start. But what, have you heard anything from the league about what they intend to do if, say Miami, you know, they they could be a Nets playoff opponent. You know, they allow a full building of fans and New York City mandates restrictions. So what do you think would happen then? Do you think the Nets would just be stuck with a home court disadvantage despite the, you know, the better record?
0: You know, probably. I mean, I think I think the the league thinks they'll be able to increase the capacity as the season goes on, but I don't know that they'll get anywhere near the ability to get, you know, close to full, uh, you know, if you're talking about the regular season ends mid-March, I'm sorry, mid-May and uh, you know, vaccines, they hope will be open to everyone, you know, sometime in May. And, you know, there's really no way you would think enough people vaccinated, you know, to be in the playoffs by June, July, that they could really open up the whole building. I mean, if they can get close to half, I think that would be great. I don't really know if that's doable. I don't think they get much more of that, but, but yeah, I mean, there may be some States who, get more people and they allow more people in as we're seeing with like the Texas baseball team. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I, think the Nets and the Knicks, you know, if they make the playoffs, I, I don't think they're going into it thinking they have anywhere near close to a full building this year. It'd be great if it happened, but I think it's a little too much to ask. Unfortunately.
2: Yeah. I don't think the league is turning down money, especially in the playoffs. Brian Mahoney of the New York, of the, New York, of the Associated Press. Thank you so much for joining me today and give listeners some of your wisdom. Uh, one day. I I really do hope to be able to thank you in person, but for now, thank you,
0: Brian. Yeah, that'll be great, Steve. Looking forward to that. Thanks for having me.
2: Good stuff there from a really good guy, Brian Mahoney of the Associated Press. Thank you again, Brian. Found it interesting that he liked Drummond to the Nets more than Tucker. I kind of feel like he's going to be Lakers bound, just my hunch. We'll know soon enough the NBA trade deadline is 10 days away. And then the buyout market rolls on until around April 9th. Nets have two open roster spots, one of which I think must be filled before the trade deadline. What do they need? It's hard to say, given the way they're cooking right now. I guess another center is Jordan protection. Maybe like a JaVale McGee or Robin Lopez, if either is bought out. Definitely another wing defender should be on the wish list. Playing TLC real minutes is no longer tenable. I wouldn't be averse to giving Andre Robertson a minimum deal if Sean Marks can't turn injured Spencer Dinwiddie and his expiring contract into something of good value. The bottom line is that this team is so talented. Like Brian said, you hear coaches all the time say that their team played pretty good defense. You just can't stop them. Some of the moves Irving makes to create space and then the fundamentals of his shooting or Harden's ability to manipulate defenders with his ball-handling guile and then find open teammates when none were apparent to the naked eye. Just wow. And then KD will return in a couple of weeks. I know, it's still hard to get used to all this. But like I said before, it's real and it's spectacular. And it's also the end of another episode of the City Game Podcast. Thanks again to Brian Mahoney of the Associated Press. I'll be back next week, so follow me on Twitter to check the posting. Or you can simply subscribe to this podcast on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're downloading these episodes. Also, please feel free to post some nice comments on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. So until next time... I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFN dot com saying thank you for listening to the City Game podcast.